Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today, we got an awesome topic, awesome guest. It's topic is logistics and supply chain 1940 to 2040 with my friend jason miller how's it going jason it's going good joe thank you so much for having me on yeah excellent i'm I'm excited to talk about this so just to give you some background in 2014 i spoke at an apex conference so i forget what apex stands for now but uh it was supply chain and the topic i spoke about it was at actually at oakland university and i think they just opened an apex chapter there and Oakland University, for those of you who don't know, is uh, out in Rochester, Michigan. Actually, it started off as a Michigan State uh, uh, campus. So anyway, I gave I gave a speech on this, and I, I asked my friend Jason Miller. By the way, before I get too far, Jason, please introduce yourself and your company or your institution. Yeah, so I'm Jason Miller. I'm one of the uh, tenured faculty in the supply chain management department at the Eli Broad uh, College of Business. My specialty is essentially, I I usually call myself a supply chain economist, meaning my task is to translate a whole bunch of economic data written by economists into a form that is useful for supply chain professionals. Right. And I say, Jason's been on my podcast before. He is one of the best follows on LinkedIn. He takes all sorts of data. In fact, he sent me probably five emails this morning about what we're talking about. And he's really good at taking, I think, mostly government data and making sense of it, where most of us look at it and our eyes glaze over. Jason gets pumped over that government data. But anyway, getting back to it. So I gave this presentation uh, about logistics and supply chain, 1940, 2040. And I talked to Jason about it, said, could you help me do this as a podcast? Because he can bring the academic rigor. He loves to go and actually have research where I think my presentation was good and directionally correct. Jason tightened it up quite a bit as we talked about it. So we want to talk about this topic, but you can't talk about all logistics and supply chain. So we picked one product. We picked the skillet. So the iron skillet that uh, in 1940 would look very much like the iron skillet that we use today. So in a way, we're holding that the skillet, we're holding that constant, and we're going to use this as an analog for all of the logistics and supply chain. Did I capture that, Jason? <laughs> yeah, I think you got you got that exactly. <laughs> so let's get started. So in 1940, my grandparents would have lived in Detroit, Michigan, and they would have bought a fry, a, a, a skillet, a frying pan, whatever you want to call it. And I say skillet because it's the hard, it's the, it's the heavy duty. Uh, it's, not, it's not the light metal. It's the forged stuff, right? So my grandma would have bought a skillet, probably at a department store, probably had one car in the family. So she might have walked to the store and she might have walked and got it. Where was that? Where was that skillet made, Jason? And how did it get there? Yeah, so you think you think back to you know 1940 and look at things. That skillet is most likely going to be produced in the Upper Midwest, most likely in Wisconsin, because Wisconsin's always had a you know a very solid lock on sort of that you know cast iron skillet production. Right. 
And so you, when you think about the supply chain to get that skillet, so even think to begin with about the raw material process, the that cast iron skillet, the iron ore is going to be mined in either northern Minnesota or northern Michigan, right? It's going to move by boat down through Lake Michigan, down to most likely the U.S. Steelworks in Gary, Indiana. And so we're going to have the iron ore coming in. The steelworks is right off the water. So we're going to be going boat into this, you know, full blast furnace, you know, the old continuous casting type of steel production. So we're going to be producing it. Then it's going to go by train up to Wisconsin. And then we're going to get to the point where we're going to be stamping that out. It's going to go by train back to Detroit again. And then it's going to be going to almost assuredly a wholesaler. You're going to have one or two in that, you know, greater Detroit era, area who are going to be holding stock of that. And then they're going to be doing small deliveries to right. the department stores that need. So you've got a very local supply chain and you have a lot of intermediaries in the distribution mix. Right. And a lot of that's just because you've got markets that are fairly small. And so you're having to break that bulk more than necessarily you would in today's basis. And so it's a very local supply chain. Um, everything is confined to the United States. And it's, you know, I hate to say small scale, but it's smaller scale than what we think about right. today. Right. And I think we should also mention, Jason, is that that uh, manufacturing process, very labor intensive. It, there wasn't a lot of capital investment. We didn't have them. We first probably didn't have money to invest. But secondly, because we didn't have the, the financial markets weren't as mature as they are now. But on top of that, I don't even know what they would invest in. No, no and, that, and that's a that's a great point, you know, Joe, as we think about this. So data on um, manufacturing at a fairly detailed level, actually, in the United States goes all the way back to 1958, if you can believe that. The National Bureau of Economic Research maintains this incredible database that comes from census documentation. And so if you look, if we go back to 1958 and say, okay, we know capital investment is going to be far less than in 1940, even than 1958, but in the sector that produces um, for you know cast iron skillets, you're looking at just even in 1958, it's only about fifty thousand dollars of capital per employee, which may sound like a lot, but as you know, we'll fast forward um, here in a few minutes to the 1980s, we see that number go from you know roughly about forty fifty thousand to a hundred and fifty thousand. Right. So we're we're kind of at the cusp of as we'll transition through to very major changes in how a product like a cast iron skillet right. is going to be made. Right, right. And it's it's interesting. I'm in my 50s, so I can say this. My mother would always say stuff like this about frying pans or skillets or anything. She's like, they're, they're very expensive to buy new ones. So people who are, who are older now, you'll hear your grandparents say this. They'll talk about how stuff is very expensive. And it was very expensive. So in their mind, skillet would be a big investment, much more so than you would spend on today. I don't have the actual numbers, but I can tell you it would have been a big, big purchase and they would have made it last forever. When I was a kid, <laughs> my grandparents had stuff that was ancient because uh, they, they needed it to last forever. So, so 1940, made in Wisconsin by with local metal, basically, local iron ore, I should say, 
and produced basically all through the Midwest. And then train, we didn't use it. We, truck traffic wasn't a real big thing. So 1980, and we'll talk about 1980. Before we get to 1980, let's talk about some of the changes that happened in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. So in 1940s, we had World War II. And I think in a lot of ways, modern logistics was born. I mean, it was a big uh, getting getting all those guns and food and and people to the right places was huge. And there's an old quote that I, I, I pull that up. It says, and it's by Admiral E.J. E. King. And he says, I don't know what the hell this logistics is that Marshall was always talking about, but I want some of it. And it kind of speaks to the fact that they didn't even know what logistics was. Marshall did. And that's why he was such a good general. So back then, things always moved, but things didn't move overseas. <laughs> they didn't move like that. Not that much stuff. So we got, we came into our own in logistics. And one other thing, I think I, I saw some research that suggested in the during the war, you couldn't even get metal for consumer goods because it was always going into military stuff. So Jason, talk about what, what went on post-war in the 50s. Yeah, so when you get out of World War II, so we have um, a very strong consumer boom because so much money had been saved up during the war because, Joe, just as you mentioned, you couldn't spend money on a lot of things. Many items were rationed. So you have a very strong consumer boom and a strong manufacturing boom that takes place, um, especially on that consumer, you know, consumer side. And you have to add the caveat that after World War II, the United States is the world's factory at this point, because your other industrial powers have been so decimated by the war. Through the 50s, like the U.S. is global production. So I think it was, are, I think 80% of production was here after World War II. And I don't know how long that lasted, but it's an incredible number. Yeah. And so you have a strong period through the the 50s um and in the 60s you get into obviously you know vietnam um and again that's also going to shift production a little bit towards the you know the military side and so but then in the 50s and 60s you have a very important innovation and that is the interstate highway system being put in place they spent a ton that we're talking about infrastructure again but that was a big investment, and that's why we drive on highways today and expressways today. Well, and, and that's what really starts a shift of when we think about distribution of consumer products. We start moving a lot more towards truck because we've now put in a system that is much more efficient for motor vehicles, and we fully subsidized it too. You have to add that little caveat. Right. You know, if I could add something to that is one of the things I read about this big infrastructure in the 60s is they said we connected the Southwest to the rest of the country. So there was these vast areas that we now just look at as part of the United States and part of the express that you could, right now, if you said, I want to take the trip, we're, we're both in Michigan. We said, let's get in the car and drive to LA. There's an expressway going there right? <laughs> or, or a number of expressways. You can go anywhere. You can go down to Florida, this great land has expressways. Back then, you might have taken a train because there wasn't a direct route. No, it, exactly. It, it fundamentally allows the U.S. to become a national, a true national market. And I'd say that without the interstate system, it's difficult to see how the South rises as a manufacturing powerhouse because that more efficient system now makes the labor arbitrage a little bit more feasible. 
And then, you know, as you're transitioning through the 60s and the 70s, the biggest thing is the oil crisis of 73, 74 taking place. And that is a just fundamental shock to the system. And that all of a sudden, you know, we've ta- we were taking for granted how cheap fuel was. And that has a huge effect on not only how people are having to spend their money, it changes the nature of cars people are driving. And it really raises awareness of many more, I think, issues than before. But it also sets the stage then, too, for a period of very high inflation, which as we transition to the 1980s, the Federal Reserve tries to get under control through Volcker by raising tremendously interest rates. And where that is going to matter is that is going to cause a very steep recession in 1981 and 1982 that is going to essentially, for lack of a better term, wipe out many labor-intensive manufacturing operations. And we can see this actually in the industry data for the industry sector that produces um, you know, uh, cast iron skillets, is that if you take a look at what happens, as we start thinking about you know, shocks to you know, an economic system, In the 1977, there were about 140,000 individuals employed in companies that were classified as iron forging firms. So 140,000, remember that number. That's 1977, 1978. By 1982, we're down to 80,000. So essentially within a few-year period, we see... Six about roughly sixty thousand jobs on for production workers eliminated. Was that because of like automation, or was that because it was starting to move overseas? I'd say it was a combination. As one, as you could see, substantial investments starting to take place in automation in this sector. But the one thing that happened is you can see with how the data moves is that many labor-intensive operations were eliminated. Because all of a sudden you have this jump in data and capital per worker. And that doesn't happen in one year. That's not the way economic data works. And so if you can see massive jumps and changes, the only way to account for that is you have a lot of businesses eliminated. And so what you have taking place is this major shock to a sector whereby now the more capital intensive plants start to survive. But now that then creates an issue as we think about, you know, the long-term discussion of manufacturing employment in the United States of how do we start dealing with this? And Joe and I will talk about a little bit. Right. Right. And, and, you know, we, (laughs) we were prepping, I, I always call uh, politicians have a um, manufacturing job fetish. They always say, we need more good manufacturing jobs. And what they're speaking to is what was going on post-war before there was huge capital investment. So it makes sense that if I if I create a job that is heavily automated and I'm, the worker doesn't need to be trained or particularly skilled, he's not going to get as paid as much as the guy who was the craftsman who might have been his, his father's generation. So let's talk about 1980. So in 1980, let's just say my parents wanted to go buy a frying pan. By that point, my family had moved out of Detroit into a suburb. Of, and so my mom probably would have gone, bought a frying pan in 1980. She might have bought it at a Sears or a Kmart or 
a store like that. And and I'm thinking about this, Jason, one of the things we talked about when we we're prepping. In 1962, Walmart, Target, Meyer, which is local, like a Walmart here in the Midwest, and um, Target all opened. It's interesting, 1962. So those are important stores in their regions, but like we didn't have Walmarts here in the Midwest. I'm sure nobody had Meyers outside of Michigan probably at that point. But, um, and we didn't have targets here either, but we were, these stores started growing. And one of the things I'll, I'll talk about Walmart for a second, they were exceptional at inventory management. Kmart, just the opposite, not very good. They, they relied on sales. When you rely on sales, your inventory is hard to manage, right? That's why you always hear always low, low prices from Walmart because they learned if we do sales, our inventory is all over the place. So even before we were in the data age, they were, they were very good at inventory. So in 1980, my mom would have bought that frying pan, let's just say at Kmart. And by the way, when I was young, the worst thing that could happen to you was your parents say, we're going to buy you some school clothes. We're going to Kmart. It was, it was the worst thing that could possibly happen. <laughs> but it happened to many of us. <laughs> so as if I, it really, it's hard to be cool wearing Kmart clothes, but Anyway, where would that frying pan be made in 1980? Yeah, so in 1980, we're still looking at a high probability that manifest that that frying pan is coming from Wisconsin. No, it may now be coming from Tennessee or somewhere in the south. Right. So there's there's a there's a possibility that we've had some active some manufacturing reallocated to the southern United States, and this is pure labor arbitrage. So in other words, labor's right. cheaper in the south. Well, there was no there was no labor unions down there to speak of, and there was in the in the Midwest. And and I think talking to some guy a few years back about this, I think they had some stuff go to Alabama and Mississippi too. So it was really that would have been really the deep south then. It was that was the disconnected deep south. Yeah, no, exactly. So and and that's going to be a very important idea as we think, you know, as we'll move forward then to the twenty twenty in a bit, is this issue of chasing labor prices and how that has affected the design of supply chains. Right. But so we, we still have a domestically produced cast iron skillet. Almost assuredly it's now going to be moving most of the distance by truck rather than rail from where it's being produced. And chances are it's there's no wholesaler involved. This is going to be going from so factory. It's more efficient. <laughs> yeah, we we got re- we disintermediated that wholesaler, and so it's now going to be going from the manufacturer to let's say Sears's distribution center for distribution in you know a Sears location. One thing that you you have to keep in mind in the 1980s, you know, that's the you know sort of the glorified you know era of the mall is Walmart, Target. These companies are even by 1980, all right, that is not the key sector that we think about for distribution of a product like this. It's still the department stores are by far still dominant in 1980. Right. And so you're, you're looking at a supply chain that is still heavily domestic, um, but you've now sort of disintermediated one key part of it. Right. So we talked about 1940. We, and then we talk about 1980. So we're going to talk about 2020, which all of us know how we bought frying pans last year. But before we get to that, let's talk about some of the big changes that happened between 1980 and 2020 that changed the way our frying pan was made and moved. So I know the first one I think is 
we had this we had the cold war throughout the 60s 70s and 80s but we started seeing this the economy become a lot more global i remember 1989 when the when the great uh, wall came down in uh between germany uh east germany west germany probably many of you don't remember but it was a huge deal it was very symbolic probably more symbolic than it was maybe important to how our frying pans made but we started seeing more and more stuff be made overseas. So talk a little bit about what happened in the 80s, 90s. Yeah, so when we, when we think about what happens in these intervening years, sort of there's a few points in time that, that I like to think about. So one is going to be uh, the North America Free Trade Agreement. So NAFTA oh, signed yeah. in the 1990s. And there is overwhelming evidence from economic studies that while consumers may have benefited from trade liberalization, trade liberalization has been absolutely brutal to folks who were employed in manufacturing sectors that became much more exposed to trade. There, there is just overwhelming evidence of that, especially individuals who are not college educated, so they're more likely to be in those production jobs that can be offshored. So you have NAFTA take place in the 1990s, um, early 1990s. You have computerization um, taking place. Um, companies very much widespread adopting computers in the 80s and 90s. And with that, it comes the ability to have a lot more visibility into you know, your supply chain. You have the, com the continued spread of containerization. So we, we don't have globalization without the shipping container. And the ocean carriers like Maersk, um, as well as the port facilities to support that. But then as we think specifically about, you know, our skillet, the year to focus on, I would say, is 2000. And that is the year that the United States normalizes trade relations with China. Oh, and, yeah. And you see that happen. And there have been economic studies that look at this. That's why once trade relations were normalized with China. And what that meant was prior to normalization of trade relations, every year Congress had to approve a set of lower tariffs with China that had been negotiated and did exist. But there was always uncertainty that if this didn't get approved, we would snap back to 1930 tariffs under the Smoot-Howley Tariff Act, fun fact of history. And some of these were very high, like 90% for toys. And so companies were very hesitant to have all their production in China because of concerns. What happens if tariffs snap back to 80, 90 percent? Well, once trade relations were normalized, that fear went away. And so what you had in the first few throughout the 2000s was a great reallocation of production from the United States with typically labor-intensive factories closing down. This is what is important if we think about the politics of this. It wasn't that firms went out of business. It was manufacturing plants owned by firms that own many factories. Those plants go out of business, typically the labor-intensive ones. There And then that firm either opens a sister plant overseas or it starts importing a lot. So you right. see this precipitous decline in manufacturing employment that takes place. With that, then, 
what we start having is the rise of China as the source for many of our, you know, cast iron skillets in our example. So based on the most recent data from the Census Bureau at the harmonized tariff code level of cast iron skillets, yes, that actually is a thing and does exist. 94% of all imported cast iron skillets come from China today. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. So we had 100% in 1940 and in 2020, 80 years later, all of in 94, which is basically all of them. And, but I think what's interesting is I talked to the home goods guy a few years back. I'm, I didn't do it for this podcast, but he said he started seeing some of this trickling back. But um, but it, it would be in a very automated way, right? No, exactly. And so when we look right now at, at what is occurring in you know this this sector of, of the companies in the U.S. that uh, do iron forging. And again, I think, Joe, per that point about capital, back when we were looking at, you know, again, I said 1950s, there was about $50,000 of capital per worker. Today, and this is accounting for inflation in that type of capital. So this is what this um, Census Bureau and Bureau, National Bureau of Economic Research does a wonderful job of. Even adjusting for inflation today, that number is $400,000 of capital per worker. So an eight-fold increase. Wow. So we See, the, the, and, and if I could speak to this, is this capital is one of the reasons that you don't have these. In the past, the, the product had the, so much labor from an individual, and there was no capital investment. And so in a lot of ways, that, that guy was a very high paid. There was also no competition overseas. So it was like the perfect, if you were a manufacturing guy in the 50s and 60s, it was kind of perfect, right? Because there was no competition overseas. Even if there was, we couldn't connect with them through the internet or even through proper tariffs. So it was great. You could make a lot of money and, and raise a family on that manufacturing. Today, we're spending so much money on automation. That's where that capital investment is. And and so the worker doesn't have to be that craftsman that maybe his dad or grandpa was, right? No, it's just not worth the same money. Yeah, exactly. So two, two statistics in this regard that I think are to me very revealing. One of those is output per worker. And again, this is adjusted for inflation in that sector. In the in 1960, it was about $100,000 of output per worker, with that being in 2012 dollars. Today, that number is 350000 So each production worker today within the iron forging sector is making three and a half times the output that we did right. 60 years right. ago. But, but to some extent it's no, not to some extent that's not because the worker is adding that much more value. It's because the capital investment and that's, that's the tricky thing. So somebody could, you know, if they were saying workers should be paid this much more because their output is that much more, their outputs that much more because of, the investments. But before we get to that, though, so let's talk about 2020. One other thing. So we talk about between 1980 and, 19, and 2020, that 40 years, we had the whole world open up. We had NAFTA. We had we normalized relations with China. We started seeing things move overseas. We also had the internet, which allowed us to connect with that productivity boomed, right? We, we also went... When I first started working, I didn't have a computer at my desk. <laughs> and then for a long time, there was computers that you shared with the department. 
and then and it wasn't networked and then when it was networked inside the building that was a big deal but then when it was networked to the internet i'm gonna age myself i remember having a boss i worked in automotive engineering and i remember the boss came in and said in a staff meeting every day all of you need to go on the internet and answer your emails <laughs> and we're like and we're like well, who's sending us an email and he's like we're all sending emails to each other and i was like and so once a day, we all had to go in. And I remember he'd, he he would send us an email and we had to respond to it. <laughs> and, and I was like, Mike has lost his damn mind. We're all sitting there saying, are you responding to Mike? Yes, I am. I said, I got your damn email. <laughs> and and it was it was a joke for us that we had to do this. And it was hard to get in. And I remember not so many years after that, doing business in China. And it took three weeks for emails to get between China and the U.S. because we weren't connected. And and I remember it was like a miracle. They would call, they would send us a fax to say that they got the email. <laughs> so, so anyway, between 1980 and 2020, the world opened up and also we got the internet and which is huge. But one other thing that happened, Jason, and speak to this, please, is 9-11. That changed everything the way we want to do business. Yeah, no, 9-11 certainly brought in the security angle to a much, much greater degree. And the other thing I would add, too, is, and the pandemic has made this very apparent, is the rise of e-commerce. I mean, so when you think about oh, yeah. how that skillet's going to get to you to die, you may go into Walmart and buy it. You may go in, Home Depot's going to have cast iron skillets. You may go into Home Depot and buy it. You may go into Target and buy it. You may order it from Amazon. You may order it online from Target and have them ship to the or, store and you will go and get it. You may <laughs> go to Costco. And, and so what we've done is we've opened up, you know, this sort of omni-channel option for right. different ways of making the purchase and potentially fulfilling the item. Now, the one thing I will always right. keep stressing is I will read a lot of hyperbole of, you know, brick and mortar stores are going out of business um, or brick and mortar is obsolete. And then I look at Walmart, Target, Costco, Meyer, Home Depot, Trader Trader Joe's. And and I smile because the, when we really look at what the future of retail is, the brick and mortar firms that have the processes in place to be able to, you know, buy online, pick up in store, buy online, ship from store. They're in great position because the one thing is customers demand shorter and shorter lead times. The challenge that a pure e-commerce retailer has is how do you efficiently get a product to a customer with a one-day lead time? The only solution to that is you have to have either a lot of low, a lot of stocking points or you have to use air freight. And as we think about those, a lot of stocking points, that kind of sounds like a network of stores close to the customer. Okay, we are basically (laughs) seeing that, you know, that challenge take place. And so the one thing I'd always stress is e-commerce activity is still under 20% of retail sales. And when you hear the statistic from the Census Bureau, the one thing you have to keep in mind is how the Census Bureau collects data isn't how we think about it. A Walmart e-commerce DC 
falls under e-commerce. And so when you see these Census Bureau data, it doesn't mean 20% of the sales or 17% of the sales are to companies like Amazon. It means sales going to that are being categorized as e-commerce, but it could easily be fulfilled by a Walmart or Target or Costco. Right. right. And so the one thing I would always say is we're not going to see brick and mortar retail stores are not going anywhere. Um, they right. will still be here as in the foreseeable future. So to that point, they aren't going anywhere soon. So in 2020, I'll use myself as example because my mom won't buy, do my shopping for me anymore. Uh, so in 2020, I if I had to buy a skillet, I probably would have gone to the to a retail store. And the reason I would have gone to a retail store, I kind of like the idea of picking that up. I'm going to use that skillet. I would go maybe to Bed Bath and Beyond, not too far from me, or Costco. That was where that was. I would buy one or the other. I love both those stores. So. How is my frying, where's, first off, where's my frying pan being made and how is it getting to Bed Bath & Beyond or Costco? Yeah, so again, let's, let's assume we're going to go with an imported frying pan here. So the iron ore for that frying pan is going to be coming from either Australia or Brazil, going on a very large boat to China. Going to be, obviously, iron ore converted to steel, then go to this forging facility that's going to stamp the skillet. Skillet's going to go into a container, transported uh, across the Pacific, um, most likely through Port of Los Angeles, Long Beach then. Um, if we're going here to Michigan, there's going to be a rail line haul movement of that either 20 or 40 foot intermodal container containing said skillet to a distribution center. Let's say we'll use a Costco distribution center. And then from there, it's going to be going by truck. Um, to Costco's store. So we now have a supply chain that is completely global, spanning essentially half the world. Right. So let me ask you a question. So that skillet made in China, it would look almost exactly the same as the skillet that was made in 1940 in Wisconsin, but it's not being made probably, but certainly not the same people, but different process. How much more, how much more automation would they be using in China than we used in 1940 here? So I, I would assume probably, you know, the, the rate, the ratio would be similar to what we see today in the U.S. and project that over to China because it's going to be a similar manufacturing process. So, again, you're looking at probably eight times the capital on a dollar value basis compared to what we would have had in the 1940s, at least eight times. Wow. So so I'm going to summarize this. And then I want to talk about 2040, which will is going to be a little bit of conjecture or a lot of conjecture. So in 1940, our frying pan that would be bought here that my grandma might have bought in Detroit was made in Wisconsin uh, with iron ore that came basically out of the Midwest and then we came over here by train. In 1980, my, my frying pan probably was still made here, but maybe down south rather than Wisconsin. That's labor arbitrage. And in 1980, it came by truck, not not trail, not rail. And we also got rid of the distributor in the middle, right? In 2020, almost for sure, my frying pan came from China. What did you say? 5% are made here in the U.S.? Five. So 90, 94% of imports, of imported frying pans come from China. Unfortunately, I can't give you okay. the number of frying pans right. made in the so U.S. So most likely it came from, most yeah. So so less, it's 5% or less is what you're yeah. telling me. So my frying pan came from China today and you just do that long convoluted process. And it went from really in this this 80 years, 
from very, very local to very global. And so let's talk about 2040. So what, well, first off, talk about some of the trends that are going to impact how that gets here in 2040. So I know that we talk about some of my podcasts, so I know some of them, but talk about some of those things that we're going to want to impact between now and 2040. You got 19 years. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and again, this is, this is going to be a little bit of a conjecture on, on my part and by a little bit, I mean, a very educated uh, guess. Uh, educa- educated <laughs> guess. Um, hopefully more on the educated than the guess. But as we, as we look at things, we know a few things. So one, the labor arbitrage opportunity for East Asia relative to either the United States or Mexico is declining and it's declining by the year. So when we think about, you know, where so it's not going to be cheaper to have because of people, but we're, but we don't even, we're not dependent on people anymore yeah. as much because we're automating. Yeah. So as we automate more and more, and we do take that, the labor piece and basically hold it to equality, we start thinking about transportation. And so as we think about transportation, in my mind, there's two aspects of this. There is one is the ocean side of things. Right now we are we hope in sort of a unique occurrence with the pandemic of ocean, I hope to <laughs> of containerized ocean freight East Asia to the United States at truly unprecedented record levels. Now, what I will again stress with this is the spot prices get so much focus. But when we talk about importers to the United States, roughly, and I am these are statistics from Journal of Commerce. There were about 24 million 20-foot equivalent units imported into the U.S. in 2020. So Which is 24 million? 24 million containers worth of product. Walmart accounts for 930,000 of those. Target accounts for 600,000 of those. So as we think about imports, you see these spot prices that are very high. However, recognize a very small number of importers account for a disproportionate amount of those imports. So that is one thing to keep in mind is that those folks, Walmart's not paying $6,000 per 40 foot equivalent unit. They're not paying 4,000. They're paying about $2,200 at most. And so as we think about the ocean prices, that could potentially factor in a little bit, but I'm going to be a little skeptical on that because the biggest volume importers are not paying these sky high prices. So we've got that part, maybe it factors in, but I'm going to say part two with transportation that matters more, carbon footprint. There is, I think, an increased recognition that how we have organized global supply chains, for lack of a better word, is going to heat up the planet more than we can feasibly sustain. And you're starting to see a much greater focus on the carbon footprint side. I mean, we're already seeing Europe talking about a tariff system based on carbon footprint that I'm not sure administratively how this works, but we're starting. I mean, Europe is still an incredibly important part of the global economy. If you start seeing systems like that emerge and take shape, you can't help but think we're going to localize production much more. And so that 2040 frying pan or 2040 cast iron skillet, I would see being made either in Mexico or back in the United States potentially. However, let's say it's made in the U.S. 
this is going to be in a facility that is almost completely automated. So we're, we're talking, this is not a huge gain in manufacturing jobs. So I think per Joe's comment of politicians loving this idea of we're going to increase manufacturing jobs, we will never be back to the 140,000 production worker number that we saw within the broader industry sector that makes cast iron skillets. Iron forging had 30,000 production workers in 2018. It's assuredly lower today than that. Jason, if I could throw one other thing in there. When we were prepping for this, I, I mentioned that if you were doing, if you worked in that forging facility in Wisconsin back in the day, um, that was a dirty job. That was a dangerous job. That was a job that probably had a lot of physical labor. When you came home, you were you were tired, <laughs> you were sweaty, you were dirty, and in many cases injured. Those those aren't so. When people talk about those jobs, as you know, the good old days. If your great grandfather was alive or grandfather was alive to talk to you about it, he'd say it wasn't that grand. Right? I'd rather I'd rather be sitting at a computer getting fat than not doing my old job. Right. So. And so when we bring these back, you're talked about this being heavily automated. And, you know, I think when I did this research, and again, research, I'm air quotes here, for the, my original presentation to Apex, I talked about automation in 2020 and 2040. And one of the things that says, you know, automation doesn't really care where it lives. So China's already automating some of these things. And we don't, we say, oh, yeah, it has to be done in China because it's cheaper. It's being done sometimes cheaper because they're using automation that we assume we can't use. And again, automation doesn't give a damn if it lives in uh, Mexico or the U.S. or China. So it might as well be closer to the customer. Right. Shorten that supply chain. Exactly. I mean, you, sh- you shorten the supply chain, you're able to be more responsive. And then when we think about the distribution side, you know, it's very difficult to project forward I think that side of things in 20 years, but I can't help but think it's going to look very akin to what it is today because there are certain underlying fundamental economies that exist within designing a distribution network that we are not going, they they cannot change with current technology. I mean, there's just no other way to put it. We, We cannot change the fact that it makes sense to send full truckload shipments close to a distribution point and then to distribute a product. That will not change anytime soon. And so I would see the distribution network looking very akin to what it had, what it does today, barring some type of change or evolution that I certainly cannot foresee. So where's the iron ore go- coming from? Is this still coming from Brazil or Australia? Or are we going to pull it from the ground in North America? Yeah, we're, we're still going to be mining it in North America. I mean, the United States has been so blessed relative to China and that we still produce most of our iron ore that we use today. I mean, and so we have been, we are lucky in that we are so natural resource rich um, still in this country. And so I don't see... You know, the U.S. is not a major importer of iron. Right. I, w- I would also say that, uh, you know, all those containers, what you say, 24 million containers coming to the U.S. every day or every year. And I think also that that, that poses not only a carbon footprint issue, it's also three weeks on the ocean. I think of a security issue. You know, we talked about 9-11. I think more and more it makes sense to say, let's shorten those supply chains and not have 
the month on the the month on the ocean, three weeks on the ocean. Let's not have the port congestion. Let's not have the potential security problems that we have because it. We also know that uh, security wise, a band of lunatics can blow up the economy anywhere. And uh, you know we're we're living through this uh, COVID era. Uh, hopefully, edging our way out of it. That tells you how quickly the world can be shut down. We we experienced it, and uh, we clearly don't want to do that again. One other thing, and I'll throw this out there. Deborah Dull was on my podcast. She talked about circular supply chains with this idea of how do I take kind of the waste or waste from my exist uh, from my supply chain and have it as an input to another supply chain. And when I told her I was doing this podcast with you, she said she sent me a note saying, "Hey, there's some places where they're refinishing." products like frying pans and I assume skillets. So if you could remanufacture it and clearly you still have to make some money. No, nobody wants to say I made a skillet that lasted four generations, right? <laughs> so we somehow have to still make our money, but she pointed out that, Hey, if you could get paid enough for the remanufacturing, that makes some sense because I don't have to post, I don't have to use our natural resources. I don't have to throw anything into a dump. I don't have to recycle anything. So that's a potential that's a potential future that we might have right oh yeah certainly i mean and again i think part of that takes the consciousness on the consumer to say you know what i'm willing to pay let's say 75% of the price of a new skillet to get mine refurbished i think that the challenge there with any type of reverse or with any type of remanufacturing process is it works very well when those (laughs) when the material cost of the item is so large that you don't want to repay for it again and again i mean when when we think about you know when i always teach remanufacturing the first example of a product i give my students is i ask them when do you think boeing b-52 bombers were built and they get this look i'm like the 1950s and 60s the material cost is so expensive, we have essentially been remanufacturing, I'll put that in quotation marks, those aircraft for that long. And so extending that down to something as small as a frying pan, you know, you you hit the nail on the head. Can you remanufacture it at a profit and also train the consumer to be willing to pay enough? Right. Well, that speaks to the, the carbon thing. So it's not expensive cost-wise right now. And I hate talking about taxes or anything political, but, you know, there could be a carbon tax that might influence us to say, hey, it makes sense. We really want to get to the place where we're making the right decisions, right, for the planet. And I wouldn't be surprised to see, and I suspect this is going to happen sooner rather than later, we're going to start seeing um, companies say, here is the cost and here is the cost of the planet. And we should be able to measure that. And over time, we want consumers to be able to make the, the the decision that makes the most sense for the planet. One of the things that drives me crazy, I spent most of my career as a, in automotive uh, manufacturing things. So when I was designing parts, I would always say, you know, this has to last this duty cycle and it has to, and, and we design things to last. So much of the stuff we buy today is disposable. You go over to Ikea, Ikea I bought some for my daughters when they were teenage. Stuff's disposable. I mean, it's it's cheap, but it's disposable. And that's a challenge to me because we our grandparents' generation, everything was expensive. So they they kept things. <laughs> I remember my, you know, in that generation, they kept couches for 50 years. We throw them out because of fashion changes. 
So we have to find a way to get to rewarding stuff that lasts because we don't want to throw things into dumps. So there's, there's again, a cost, and then there's the cost of the planet. I think we'll, we'll measure that more in the next 20 years. Yeah, I th- and I think that, that it's, it's almost, to me, the, the equivalency is the requirement that we put calorie, you know, large restaurants, you know, have to put calories on the menu so the consumer is more informed. Right. And the the challenge is makes it harder to eat Big Macs when you see that, yeah, doesn't it? Well, <laughs> no, and and exactly. And, but I think that that's the challenge, right? Is we have to have a measurement system that works well. We it's easy to figure out calories. Like there is a scientific process that we know works to measure calorie content in food. Unfortunately, I don't think we're quite there yet for carbon footprint. No, nope. and and the even more the challenge is is. The vast majority of companies, now this is a key distinction, the vast majority of companies in the United States are incredibly small. No, the majority of output comes from a very few large companies, your Walmarts, your Amazons. But it's how do you make the playing field fair for the smaller entities? Because as time moves on, I will bet anyone listening to this podcast money, you will see all the big players start to lobby for a carbon tax or four reporting requirements, right? Because they can. Afford- yeah, you got to cut some. You got to cut some other tax, by the way. <laughs> That's how I feel about it. <laughs> but yeah, I, I I wouldn't be surprised. And again, it's to me, it even if we don't put a tax on it, we're we're going to start measuring it. It just makes sense. Yep. And and by the way, I had uh, the fellas from Freight Waves on not so long ago, and they're they're coming up with a measure for uh, that for trucking, and I think uh, we're starting to see that. So. Anyway, Jason, in 2040, tell me how I'm getting that frying pan. Well, so again, I think it's going to be you're going online, assuming the internet works similar to what it does now. So probably a phone. I'm terrified of implants, but I I can't help but think we're going to pretty soon have our phone implanted within us. I just, I hate to say it, it just seems like the next logical step somebody's going to make. But we're going to be, again, going, you know, online or again to a store. I, I don't see, you know, physical retail locations are not going anywhere. And I think we'll be buying it very similar to today. I think if the government has any way, we will not be paying cash for it. That, that, that is, uh, that's a given. <laughs> Ca- cashless society is what everybody wants. Um, at least from a taxation standpoint, it works, works a little easier, but we'll be, um, I don't see the distribution model looking that much different than it does today. Because just the underlying economies that exist, it's it's hard to see a different distribution model that is more efficient than what we currently have. Right. And and again, not made in China, more likely made in Mexico or the US using iron ore from here. So, Jason, I'm going to summarize this for a second, then I want to get your final thoughts. So in nineteen forty, that that iron skillet made in Wisconsin came over to the came over to the Detroit area to my grandma's favorite department store by train. There was a distributor in the middle. We didn't have highways. There was no way around it. This was very labor intensive product. 1980s, still made in the US, maybe down South, um, maybe not a labor, not, not as labor intensive, probably not a union guy if it was made down South, came on the expressways. No more distributor, right? So much more efficient. 2020, 
it it comes from China and it comes by boat <laughs> and it goes by by rail a little bit, <laughs> but but it's a it's truly that global supply chain. Twenty forty, you think it's back to where we were a hundred years ago or eighty years ago? In a lot of ways, we just did the full circle, except we won't have as many employees. We'll be much more automated and probably much greener in terms of emissions because we care. In 1940, there would probably wouldn't been no <laughs> no consideration for pollution. You know, it, it's interesting. Um, we didn't mention it, but in the 1960s and beginning in the 1960s, we started actually caring about pollution. Prior to that, no one cared. I grew up in Dearborn, Michigan, and my dad did too. And I remember him telling me as a kid, he said, we love to see the smokestacks pumping out. And we would say, it's full production. Life is good. where <laughs> Everybody's working. <laughs> we don't feel that way today. So, Jason, final thoughts on that on this long journey you've taken us on. <laughs> I, I guess, you know, it, it, to me, when I think about this topic is, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I mean, we, you know, I've always said Amazon is essentially a glorified version of Sears Roebuck that works a lot quicker. <laughs> right. and, and I can't help but think that we're heading in the same, you know, the same manner when it comes to the more localization again. The one thing I would always tell folks to keep in mind is we're never going back to the days of manufacturing employment like we had in the 50s, 60s, 70s. That is not a policy that will ever be achieved. And so as we think about, you know, how do we deal with the fact that the economy has fundamentally changed and it has unfortunately substantially disadvantaged a group of individuals who previously were in a more um, a stronger position. The policy implementation or implication is not, well, let's just go back to the 50s, 60s, 70s. You're never going to have that. That's not a profitable system for the world. And so the one thing I think I would say is, you know, as you think about just this overall topic of, you know, our cast iron skillet example and understanding how things evolve is you have to be able to take a look at what have the trends been in the past? There is data for this and really understand how do you shape incentives to make the future as, as good as you can, but again, not looking at, can we go back to the seventies? Because that isn't going to happen. Right. Right. And you know, it's, it, it is interesting because I think you said to me, uh, you were on my podcast before, and I think you said to me before that manufacturing jobs are shrinking in China. I don't know if I was the one that said that, but it, would, it wouldn't surprise me. Right. It, it, it's interesting because as we automate and spend this more and more money on capital, and you, Jason sent me probably four or five graphs today on this capital expenditure. As we spend more, and again, we're a wealthier planet where we, we have enormous wealth compared to the back 1940. We have the ability to invest and do research, and we are doing that. And, and so as a result, these jobs are going away. And there's just they're not coming back to Jason's point. And I think that's true for China too, because again, I believe they're probably using some of the same automation we're using. Anyway, Jason, I do appreciate you coming on my podcast. So what's new over at Michigan State? And but, but again, I'll say it one more time. Guys, if you are not following Professor Jason Miller on LinkedIn, please do because he has some fantastic insights. Again, I, I'm always amazed by what he's able to rig up on uh, LinkedIn. So 
What's new at Michigan State? What's new with you? Uh, not not really too, too, too much uh, new. I mean, we're all looking forward to being back teaching in person here in the fall. So I think we, we're kicking off in a couple weeks. And so I think that there's a lot of excitement to actually be back in the classroom. I think everybody, probably professors more than anything, just online learning just isn't the same. I think we've we've really established that. And so I think we're, you know, we're all looking forward to, to getting back and teaching in person again. Yeah. And I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, football season <laughs> in person. <laughs> so I'm, I'm looking forward to normal. So yeah, Jason, thank you so much. I really do appreciate you coming on my podcast. And again, this, this is, I really appreciate you d- d- diving in because I, I did this topic before, but not nearly with as much rigor. Jason added all the rigor to it. And it, it, I think it's an interesting way to look at the world though, is if you, we could do the same thing for automotive production. We could do this for a lot of different, and it's really, if you have someone like Jason, you get, can get a lot of research, but I think even without the research, you can kind of say directionally, I know what's happening today. I know how it was done back in the day. And I think it's an, you can't really predict the future unless you have some sense for where you're coming from. No, exactly. I couldn't agree more. Anyway, Jason, thanks so much. And thank all of you for coming and listening to my podcast today. Uh, Your support is very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.